Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 5th, and my guest is Eric Hanischek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Rick, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me again. Now, our topic for today is teachers and education. Uh, we're going to base our conversation around a, a very provocative paper you recently published, and we'll put a link up to that uh, on, the, on the site. Uh, what we're going to talk about is the importance of the teacher and the educational process and how we can measure it. Obviously, good teachers are better than bad ones, uh, but we, I want to start with this general question. What is the relationship between teacher quality and student achievement? The one thing that we found from decades of work now on what determines achievement of students is that the most important aspect of schools is the teacher. There's been a lot of work done, uh, some of it controversial, because what the work finds is that it's not the commonly measured attributes that we call quality, like having a master's degree or having more experience. But in fact, some people are better at it than others, right. and some people are worse at it than others. And that's what I would call uh, the value of teachers or the importance of teachers. And what are some of the magnitudes? Uh, we have some idea of the magnitude of what a good teacher will do relative to a bad one. Well, some work that I did uh, a while in the past in an inner-city school in Gary, Indiana, where there were all poor kids, we found that some teachers got a year and a half of learning in an academic year. Other teachers got half of a year of learning. So if you think about that, it says that in one academic year, students can come out a year difference in what they know at the end. Depending on who's... Which teacher they're Depending class on which assigned. teacher they somewhat randomly are assigned to. And it doesn't take much imagination to think of what would happen if you had a string of three good teachers or three bad teachers. Early on, it could actually determine where you end up very dramatically. So, you know, a year and a half versus a, a half a year. The way I, when I first heard that number from you, my first thought was, so the better teachers are three times more productive than the worst ones in that, in that particular setting. Of course, it could be that they're even better teachers that, that could be brought in, and that, that a year and a half is not really, we expect so little of our students, they should be accomplishing two years of what we call a year's worth of work. But, but basically th- three times, it's not a 20% difference. It's a huge difference. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely uh, mind-boggling in some ways. Uh, there's another way to put information about the quality of teachers, and that is comparing it to families. We all know that families are really important for learning, and that's been the constant finding since the early Coleman report in the mid-1960s. But if you look at the difference between a kid from a poor family and somebody else from a better-off family, the data suggests that a good teacher three or four years in a row can overcome this family background difference. 
Now, this is really important, particularly in the policy debate, because some people just go into thinking about achievement in schools and say, well, it's hopeless. These kids are from bad families. Right. That sociological, demographic issues are really the problem we have with America's schools. It's not, it's not the educational system. It's, the, it's not the teachers. It's not the system. It's, it's cultural problems outside of that. In fact, I mean, before we went to No Child Left Behind and started measuring achievement and holding schools responsible in some ways for achievement, it was common to go into a school and say, well, we can't do anything with this kid. He, he comes from a family that hasn't helped him. So what do you expect from us? Right. And do we have some belief now that that, is, that can be overcome, you're suggesting? Well, I, I'm suggesting so, that I, should, I you, said belief. I should say evidence rather than belief. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I, um, the evidence suggests that we can overcome it. That's what we see. Now, what we don't do is systematically ensure that a poor kid gets three or four good uh, teachers in a row. We give them a good teacher, and then, to be fair, we cycle that student through a poor teacher. Yeah, so other people lucky. can have access. Other students can at least get one good year. Exactly, exactly. And so that's why you don't see a lot of movement in achievement from year to year for poor kids. We're not systematically doing that much better. Let me digress for a minute in a way and and ask you a question about the school itself. Uh, A colleague of ours here uh, at Hoover was uh, told me he was visiting a a school in a particularly bad part of of the Bay Area. And... um, he was shocked to see how many kids were in the hall. Uh, so I joked with him. It was a, it was um, kind of a, a macabre bit of humor. You know, I said, that, well, that really ruins your, your regression analysis, your statistical analysis, because you call, a, you say a kid's had a year's worth of schooling. It turns out very little time has been spent in the classroom. They've been in the school for a year or six years or eight <laughs> years, whatever it is in the data. But very little of that is educational. And he said, yeah, I think they're there for the hang out with their buddies and meet their friends and get lunch and et cetera. That's the social aspects of the school. If you took a school like that and you put a great teacher in that school, that teacher would struggle to make the kind of differences we're talking about if the overall culture of the school wasn't improved, if that teacher wasn't paired and complemented by other good teachers, I presume. I think that's absolutely correct, that you have to think of what goes on in schools is more than the teacher going through lesson 14 with their students. In fact, there's a lot about management of the classroom, so that kids are paying attention and not distracting everybody in the classroom. There's a lot about management of the school, um, and we don't pay enough attention to some of those things, I believe, because we let kids stand in the hallway all along. And in fact, that may be a reflection of the quality of the schools directly. If the kids aren't learning anything in class, why spend a lot of yeah, time in class? That's true. You know, there's a bunch of different issues there, obviously, that could explain, <coughs> could explain that. I want to go back to your original metric, though, because I think it's, uh, it's useful to think about that threefold productivity difference. So you have a teacher who gets a kid a year and a half ahead in a year versus a teacher who gets a kid a half a year for many subjects, that's not necessarily a, 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 there's not an opportunity to measure that way. We have certain guidelines with with reading and math, particularly. Um, and you, you and I have talked about this before on the program. 
it, it's hard to know exactly what's going on outside of reading and math. Reading and math, we have a lot of intense curriculum discussions. We have guidelines about what should be accomplished. And some of them are pretty measurable. You, you know, you should be able to read at a, at a seventh grade level. Yes, there's ambiguity about what that means. Uh, there's ambiguity about what it means to have, quote, mastered geometry or algebra. But it's nothing compared to history um, or other subjects that we have our kids spend their day at. So when you talk about quality, and we're going to obviously have to come up against this issue a little later when we talk about some of the empirical work, some of the quality measures are very hard to assess, I assume, because they're not like reading and math. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, we do have measures of performance in science more often than not, and in history to some extent. There are national tests in geography. Uh, turns out our students don't know much about geography, yes. <laughs> according to these tests. Um, we have these, these various subjects that are measured. The work I've been talking about is rather focused on reading and math, and that's because we can track how much a student gains over a year. We measure their reading abilities at the end of third grade, and we measure them at the end of fourth grade, and we can see how much it improved. This is really important when we come to empirical work about assessing the quality of teachers. What we want to know is, what's the value added of teachers? How much do they add, given what the kid knew coming into class or knew from families or prior teachers? And that assessment has been important as people talk about evaluating the performance of teachers and maybe even paying and making decisions about their um, continued placement in the school based upon their value added. So we do focus a lot on reading and math. I don't think there's anything magical about the fact that we're spending all of our time on that. I think that there's the same distribution of quality when we look at history teachers and at science teachers and so forth. We just have a harder time analytically identifying the teacher impacts. Yeah, I, I'm, I think that's generally true. I think the part I would struggle with, and some of this is introspection, you know, as I struggle with my own attempts to teach well and, and I think about it in an armchair way, uh, it's not always clear what, what we want good teachers to accomplish, right? In, in the case of math, it's a little more straightforward. There's certain technical skills we expect a student to, to absorb at a certain point. Similarly with reading, certain comprehension. History is trickier. Obviously, you can test factual accumulation of facts. Most of us would argue that's not good history. History is about subtler, broader causal forces you'd like a student to appreciate. Analytical ways of thinking analytically um, certainly would be part of your goal as, as a teacher of economics as opposed to somebody testing your students on marginal rate of substitution equals A, ratio of PX to PY, PY to PX, PX plus PY, right? So th those would not be – we could easily test those things, but the things that we deeply care about I think are much harder to test. And and I even you – know, my wife's a math teacher, uh, high school math teacher, and I think she struggles, for example, with technical competence versus subtle intuition and deeper issues that are very hard to, to test. Well, I pick up on what you said at the end. I don't think math and reading are all that different from science or history in terms of wanting people to have deep understanding and be able to generalize from 
things that they read or see. Uh, that's the same in math as, as it is in history. It is harder to test. And one of the disappointments to me of the movement toward better accountability, no child left behind in state accountability systems, is that the tests haven't improved as much as I would have hoped. Yeah. I thought going into the federal uh, push on accountability in 2001 that it was going to be a race between improving the test and, and the system yeah. sur surviving. It turns out that there hasn't been all that much solid effort at improving the test to get at things we want. And I think that that's one of the things that has to keep going in the future. I don't understand quite why it's been so slow in getting tests. There is There are a couple consortia that are being supported by the federal government to try to develop better tests in the future, but we haven't seen them yet. Yeah, it's an interesting issue because those of us who are skeptical about the value of testing, and I'm somebody who's, I'm, I guess I call myself, Agnostic. Um, I don't have a. I don't have a, uh, a horse in the race. Particularly, I think measurement's good. I think it's sometimes things are hard to measure. So, but when when, when you debate these issues about accountability and testing, uh, you know, one view says, well, like, suggests what I just alluded to earlier. Well, some of these things are important. You can't test. And the answer that's always been, well, we need to make better tests for sure. And let's try, as you say, let's let's put the effort in to make them better. I think what the advocates of testing neglected was the political pressures post-imposition uh, of testing. So, you know, in an extreme, we just had a scandal in Atlanta where students were improving their test scores dramatically, and it turns out teachers, it, it's not that they were, you know, giving away the answers in subtle ways. It isn't that they were teaching to the test. These are the kind of things people worried about. They were just more creative. They were going into the exams after the tests were finished and changing the, where the pencil marks were. Uh, so that they would look better. And, and that, of course, is an incentive problem. Uh, one of the, you to predict it's things like that. Uh, but they were, it was a pretty widespread conspiracy. So I think the political forces that push teachers to do that similarly push them to advocate for easier tests na nationally and, and to resist improvements in testing. I think it's a fascinating issue. It would be great to get an investigative reporter to get in, into the, the nuts and bolts of that. Well, I, I should say that uh, we shouldn't get too hung up on the testing per se. I think that testing gives us certain information and allows us to compare across schools and so forth. But we get very good information from the normal evaluations that can yeah. be done. Sure. That's the way businesses do it. They don't, they test, don't, test, their yeah. they don't <laughs> test their employees or they don't count the number of widgets in general that an employee Correct. produces. But uh, they have if they can, they do sometimes, but they often can. they can't. So that, that's correct. Um, and one of the things that's happened from looking at value added of teachers and going down this line of well, these tests are too narrow, or lots of people can't be tested, and so forth, is some suggestion that we should improve evaluations of teachers more generally, uh, say through more frequent and better in-class evaluations and other information. This is a, actually an interesting case in Los Angeles. You may have seen about a year ago, the Los Angeles Times 
hired a researcher to produce value-added scores for all the teachers they could in Los Angeles. It turned out about 3,000 teachers could be put in evaluation uh, of value-added scores on tests. And they published the results. What does that mean, put in a value add? What is, explain um, there, This is what I was talking about before, where you follow the achievement of kids within individual classrooms, and you, in some sense, get the average gain in learning in a classroom and compare that in one classroom to the gains in another classroom and use that as a metric. So you're saying there were 3,000 teachers. There was, there was some post-end-of-the-year metric. That's right. There are 3,000 teachers for whom they could develop these statistical models that provided value added. And of course. And then they published these by name. Awkward. In the LA Times. Public school teachers. Public school teachers. This was not my favorite way of doing personnel policy. Firestorm uh, followed, no doubt. (laughs) There was, uh, yes, a complete firestorm in Los Angeles, and there's still little repercussions of this going on. But one of the things that happened out of that is that the school district and the unions to some extent said, oh my God, if they're going to publish value-added scores, maybe we should have a better evaluation system. And instead of just mumbling, we need better evaluations of teachers, they set out to actually put that in place. And I think in mm-hmm. over the next year, there will be a much better evaluation of teachers not based upon these test scores, but on broader measures. That's interesting. Of course, one of the, uh, you know, this, they've done this for hospitals now, survival rates after surgery, other infections. And, of course, many hospitals correctly claim, well, our rates are low of, say, survival after surgery because we get the hardest cases. You didn't control for that. Uh, but, of course, there's some bad hospitals, too, uh, hospitals that aren't careful or surgeons that aren't careful. So, similarly, a great teacher might get assigned a challenging group of students, have modest or mediocre improvement over the course of the year, and would say that's not representative of my achievement, right? My that's absolutely added. true. That, that's the case. And the underlying idea is to try to separate out the teacher from other influences, that's not always possible. And there's actually a lot of current research going on of what is the influence of the composition of the class on these value-added scores, what's the impact of measurement errors in the test over time, how stable are they. There are a lot of these issues that are actively being discussed. Um, And I think things, uh, the technology is improving. It's actually being used for the teachers uh, where it's possible in Washington, D.C. now. And I think it's a pretty good system where part of of the evaluation of teachers comes from their influence on test scores, but at least half, and in other cases, all of their evaluation comes from in-class observations of trained observers and so forth. You could ask, of course, parents impressions of what, what kind of a year their, their child had. It's, there's obviously many, many creative ways to do it. Now, I think you mentioned earlier, certainly you talk about this in your paper, that some of the standard ways that I think most people think of as determining uh, teacher quality are not very helpful. So a lot of, and a lot of school systems, of course, pay people according, pay their teachers, not according to value added. There's no merit, very little merit pay in the I think very little, there's some, but very little in the public school system. Typically, teachers are paid whether 
if they have extra, if they have a master's degree or a PhD, they're paid extra per year of experience. And I think you would claim that there's very little evidence that those two things matter very much for outcomes and, and quality. Is that correct? Um, that's absolutely correct, except for the first couple years of teaching experience where people actually learn their craft a little bit more. There's no impact of added experience on average. There's no impact on average of having a master's degree. Uh, but those are the things we buy. Those are the things we pay for in the schools. We pay bonuses for Going master's school, degrees. Yeah. You get about a 20% bump in your salary if you get a master's degree. It has no impact. No measured on impact. Perf- yeah. On performance. Yeah. Uh, we pay more for experience of teachers, uh, but again, on average, that doesn't have an impact. It seems reasonable, both of those, but if you think about it a little further than your first thought, it, it's pretty clear. It actually, in the case of experience, can go the other way. After you've taught a certain length of time, you get a little burned out, and um, it, it's harder to maintain your excellence in some settings. It's not, you're not, you haven't gotten... Learning by doing is over. But those old pages get pretty yellow yeah. <laughs> for some teachers, yeah. and that has an impact. But it's an interesting question. Let me ask a, unre- a related but not directly related question, which is that those first few years, are, as you point out, are very can be very challenging. Uh, there's certainly a, a learning curve there. Some of it's in, in pedagogy, how, how to get the material across. A lot of it's in classroom management. It's just how do you keep the kids from eating you alive, I think, at the Absolutely. high school level. Uh, and it's fascinating to me that the, how hard that is to do and how some people have a knack for it and uh, others others do not. But it raises a question. If you're a principal, it's nice to hire teachers who've all been have at least three years of experience who've suffered, their students have suffered somewhere else. How do you go about hiring a new teacher when you do, when it's hard to ascertain quality in advance? Yes, you could look at their grades. You could look at their whether they have a master's degree. But those... Things often don't help much, as you suggest. So, how does how does a good principal? Do we know anything about how principals successfully pick teachers, or is it just that they fire the bad ones well, I think in a private system? I think there's a lot of uncertainty in all cases of hiring teachers. You do what uh, human resources departments and firms do. You have an interview with them. You try to see how smart they are, how adaptive they are. In schools, you might even have them as practice teachers and see how they give Give a a lesson, lesson, model lesson. You might ask them to bring in a lesson plan for what they're going to be teaching. Um, You do all those things, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. And so, in my opinion, we just have to live with the uncertainty of hiring, but make better decisions about who stays in the classroom. Yeah. So in a private school, uh, a private school makes a mistake, thinks the teacher's going to be a great teacher after five years, say, the three-year apprenticeship, effective apprenticeship, and then two more years, they still aren't being successful in the classroom, they typically are going to get fired. In the public school system, we're kind of stuck with them, aren't we? Well, the, very much so. Um, in California, after two years, teachers have tenure. So if you think of the first year, it's kind of rocky, and people say, well, let's help Mrs. Smith out to get better at this job, and they spend the second year doing it. 
um, and she may improve or, or marginally change what she's doing, but she's got tenure and she's around for as long as she wants to stay. It's not a decision of the school. Now, typically, the most common is that there's tenure after three years. In most in, states. In most states. It depends on states. This has actually been part of the turmoil in state legislatures around many states of the country of whether tenure remains as it has been or if it's changed and what their valuation system is. Everybody's focused on Wisconsin and their activities to change the labor laws, but there have been nine or ten other states that are doing very similar things. A number of them are effectively eliminating tenure as we've known it. You have to be able to demonstrate good performance and get evaluations that are good before you get tenure, something that hasn't been actually uh, demanded in the past. Yeah, in, um, in the movie Waiting for Superman, uh, the documentary, uh, which, which, I, which I recommend, I enjoyed it. I think you're in it, is that I am, correct? I was in it. Yeah, uh, th- they, they talk about this shuffling of the worst teachers around a school system. So the teachers have tenure, but the principals know who the horrible teachers are. And what happens? Is that in every state? That, 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 what's that called? A, well, it's sometimes called the dance of the lemons yeah. or the turkey trot yeah. or other things uh, locally where teachers are moved around uh, from school to school they're not very effective, but you can't get rid of them. I so mean, the you other move them half to another it, school, but you have to accept some teachers coming from, you hope that, that the other people's lemons are better than yours. That's right. Right, a little sweeter. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the other device for dealing with oh, yeah. bad teachers is what's been called the rubber room. Yes, that was uh, shocking to me, actually. A tremendous article in... Uh, the New Yorker on New York City rubber rooms, but they exist in many cities. We'll put that up on the web. Where you take um, incompetent teachers um, and just put them in a big room and keep them away from kids. Now, this, pay, But you're still paying them, of course. You're still paying them, and you have to by tenure. I'm actually a fan of rubber rooms. Better than um, the alternative. That's exactly the point, <laughs> that... If the choice is having them harm kids or having them paying them to sit around all day in an empty room, I'd rather do the latter. But the fact that the latter occurs once <laughs> is shocking, I think. And it, this is true, right? There are teachers paid to do nothing, literally, and sit there. Absolutely. I mean, now, part of these are people that are waiting while they're court cases being decided for some felony charge uh, against them or, or something okay. like that. Right. Um, or they're on drugs and they're de- while they're in detox, they're in the rubber room. But more recently, it's been that teachers are just incompetent at their teaching, and they've been added in there. And they sit around because their contracts have due process clauses that allow them to stretch out any attempts to remove them. Okay. It's good to know. <laughs> Unfortunate. Uh, let, let's move on to the, the empirical work that you've done in this paper, which is uh, bold and provocative, where you try to measure 
the dollar impact on lifetime earnings of students who get a great teacher versus a media a really mediocre teacher. So talk about first the question you're trying to answer. Now, obviously, uh, a crucial issue for any school system is is how much they pay. One way of measuring whether pay is set correctly is to see, well, how many people show up to apply for the jobs. And if there's, you could argue, well, if there's excess applications for slots, you're paying too much. But it's always possible that you've, you're searching in the wrong quality pool. You need to be a much higher salary. So obvious question would be, what's the value on the demand side from students or their parents of what a good teacher is? So you've tried to measure that and tell us what, what, how you did it and what you found. Sure. I mean, the overall idea is that um, people say teachers are good and more achievement is good, but that doesn't have much meaning. If I tell you that in this classroom your kid is going to learn half a standard deviation <laughs> more, most people have no idea what that means, including me. you and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. You know it means more. You, you could translate that jargon into some... Slightly clearer measure, but you don't know what its significance is for, significance is for your child, certainly. Um, so what I tried to do is just put together information that we know a lot about. We know a lot about how much difference there is between a good and bad teacher. That's what we talked about before. And we know what a teacher at the 75th percentile does in terms of student achievement growth in a year versus somebody at the 25th percentile. We know that part in terms of, again, standard deviations of achievement. But there's another body of literature that has looked at what is the impact on earnings of individuals if they know more. And what we found is you earn more on average if you know more. And it's very systematic. The estimates from very different sources have given quite consistent answers to this. So all I did was try to put those two bits of information together. Um, there's actually a third bit that I'll add, too. A good teacher adds some amount of achievement to a student. That added achievement, part of it carries through into the future, and part of it is sort of lost. You know, it depreciates. We, it depreciates. We, we go off and forget things that we learned. Correct. Um, but part of it stays. And if you carry that through to when they go into the labor market, you can say, well, what's the value of the achievement that stayed with the student in terms of earnings? And we can project that out over the entire lifetime. So I can't tell you what's the value of a teacher versus no teacher, because we don't really observe kids without teachers. We do occasionally. I mean, there's there's students who are on independent study, or they might be doing a tutorial online, you, you can debate whether that's no teacher. We can talk about different yeah. uh, different ways of doing this. But in general, um, what I can compare is a good teacher, say a 75th percentile teacher versus a 25th percentile teacher. And I can say, how much does the teacher in the 75th percentile add, say, to an compared to an average teacher? Or how much does a person in the 25th percentile subtract? compared to an average teacher. Now, there's one other bit of information that you, of course, have to know, and that is how many kids is a teacher affecting each year? 
So this is basically the class size. Right. Um, if without giving you the numbers yet or the answers, let me just mention that if you think in this in these terms, it immediately suggests that you ought to give your good teachers big classes yeah. and your small uh, classes should go to the poor teachers <laughs> because they do less harm or less damage in yeah. terms of lifetime earnings. That's interesting. Now, of course, that's not the way we do it because pay has nothing to do with the value in terms of lifetime earnings of kids as we do it now so that the good teachers might get mad and say, I'm not going to stay if you keep giving me large classes. It's more work, harder to discipline them, more grading, et cetera, yeah. The typical economist would say, well, if we compensated <laughs> you more, maybe you'd be willing to take on a few other kids in your class, and it would be worth a lot. Yeah, big bang. So, and, and, and the other way, of course, to think about that is uh, often the parents through the grapevine have discovered who the best teachers are, they want their te their kids to take those classes, and they're told, of course, well, there's no room. That teacher's class is full. You can't switch yeah. into that class. And certainly there are many fine teachers who can teach 35 kids almost as effectively as 17. And for the 18 kids who get into that class extra, it's a, it's a glorious improvement. Well, absolutely. I mean, I remember when you were teaching intermediate micro <laughs> when we were together with 150 kids. Yeah, and you were very Rochester. good at that. Long time ago. Um, so let me give you just a single number that comes from putting these bits of information together. If I take a teacher at the 75th percentile, I can rank order all teachers, and I just count up to three quarters in, three quarters in, and compare that teacher to an average teacher. Each and every year, according to these estimates, that 75th percentile teacher is adding $400,000 to the economy. To the in life. terms of lifetime, present value of lifetime earnings of her students in that year. Yeah, I think it's more to the economy, if, if those numbers are correct, because the employers of those students would also get some producer surplus. But you're doing but just the, the pay gains, gains, not the amounts. The, not, these are the incremental amounts that, that students could earn over their lifetime, correct? Absolutely. So these are not... These are not to the producer. There might be more. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, yeah. And, in fact, I have some other estimates talking about how more of that might be, how much more. Um, but to just cement in this number, if you think about this problem, it's symmetrical. So that the 25th percentile teacher, the one that's one quarter in, is subtracting each and every year $400,000. Relative to the average. Relative to the average. To me, it doesn't this, have to be symmetrical, by the way, but it, you're saying it is. It's pretty symmetrical. Okay. Um, if you think about this, what it says to me is that these numbers are big enough to think about the Take issue of yeah. who's in the class. Um, so, I mean, even if I'm wrong by 100%, so cut these numbers in half, that each and every year the 75th percentile adds only $200,000 to the economy versus subtracting $200,000 for the 25th percentile teacher. It says that it's worth our thinking about who's in the classroom and how we manage our teaching force. So I, I want to ch challenge the that $400,000 figure in terms of the methodology because I'm a little skeptical of it. But before I do that, I want you to clarify the claim. 
So I have 20 students in a class, say. You're saying that a, a 75th percentile teacher, I'll do a 50th average teacher, a median teacher, that that 75th percentile teacher will improve the lifetime earnings, lifetime, not, this is not an annual number, this is over the lifetime, they're worth an extra 20000 say, to each student in that class. Is that correct? Yes, that's roughly. And does it matter what grade they're in? Well, the, um, here it doesn't matter what grade they're in, in the sense that I've allowed for depreciation at each grade. So that what I'm saying is that 70% of what a kid gets in the fourth grade carries through on into graduation. Now, on into graduation, not in terms of that's a huge portion of their number in terms of mathematical skills, but it leads to what they learn in future grades and so forth. Graduation of that year, not... not, not. No, I'm talking about... I'm, eventually, what I'm doing is, is projecting out to when they leave school and go into okay, the so, labor market. So... Each year, the number I'm, again, I want to try to get a feel for the magnitudes here. If from kindergarten on through 12th grade, I, through the luck of the draw in my school system, get miraculously put year after year in a 75th percentile teacher's class versus someone who, it has to be random, Mm -hmm. has... On average, my abilities and parental background, et cetera, from my school versus somebody in the 50th percentile, I get a bonus from my acquisition of knowledge that's extraordinary, right? Absolutely. Which is, it's going to be the equivalent of 20,000 every year, correct? Exactly. I can add them, I can, I can accumulate those, and I'm going to get something closer to the order of, Two hundred and fifty thousand in present value terms. In present value terms, that's over a lifetime. So we're comparing it to roughly one to one and a quarter million dollars is the average present value of somebody in the labor market. Let's call it a million to make it easy. So uh, somebody, the average person might make a million. Person who got the great teachers could make would be up at the higher end Mm -hmm. through no other you know no other effects whatsoever. Just the fact that they got better knowledge. Now, of course, the, the, the first, the, excuse me, you know, you talked about you're putting stuff together. Obviously, you can debate the, the depreciation rate, which is going to matter a lot. Uh, but the thing I would worry about is that, is that um, the two issues here. One is, are teachers randomly assigned? Is the 75th percentile teacher just the really good teacher, or did it happen to be the teacher who was assigned to the better students? So that we would call, I think, a, a selectivity bias. The other, a selection bias. The other question would be uh, what we might think of as an endowment effect. That, and, I, and this is where sort of my, I call this passing the sniff test. It just it strikes me as unintuitive that uh, teachers make that much difference. And so let me give you the counter argument, and you can react to these two issues. Counter argument would be kids learn what they need to learn. You know, you have a bad teacher, uh, eventually you're going to figure out, if you're, let's say, gifted in math. If you're gifted in math, a bad teacher will slow you down. But eventually, you're going to be an engineer anyway, let's say, to take it a field that math-gifted kids go into, or a, a finance major, or a, uh, a, a physicist. 
And you have to believe in your story that that mediocre teacher in 10th grade geometry or algebra kept this gifted math kid from achieving what they would have achieved anyway, and vice versa, that there are some great engineers-to-be who don't become engineers because they have a bad 6th grade teacher, they never learn fractions, they fall hopelessly behind, not hopelessly, but staggered, because they're staggered by this blow of a bad teacher, and they don't they don't do as well in the job market. It's a little hard to believe. Oh, I don't find it hard to believe at all. That's the idea that we have behind all of the intense policy debates about schools now, is that schools do make a difference. The story that you just spun out is one where schools really don't make that much difference. You know, who cares whether you go to a good or bad school, the kid will eventually learn this. That parental and genetic effects dominate those. And, and, and let me carry the argument further. So, okay, uh, I've got the bad, I get, I get a bad luck from the draw, bad luck of the draw for my sixth, seventh, and eighth grade teachers. So I, I fall behind in my, say, math skills, but I'm good at math. And your story is I never catch up. I think that that's, in fact, what happens, is that um, the kid who doesn't do very well in 8th or ninth grade Algebra 1 ends up never getting to Algebra 2. He gets shuffled off, or she gets shuffled off into some other direction and never actually catches up because they're put in, in, on a different path. Um, or, I, or the other possibility, of course, is they're pushed through they're past. They didn't cover all the material because that teacher only got through three quarters of it, that 25th percentile teacher. And their ability, so this is where I again struggle with it, their ability to, I don't disagree. I think it's certainly true their ability to absorb the new material is handicapped by the past. Just hard to know how much that, it's hard to understand that that is going to change their the salary they get when they walk out of uh, high school or college you know, many years later. Well, we know that people who score higher on these tests in math and science, when we measure them in school, subsequently earn more. We follow people into the labor market, and 10 years later, those math tests in at age 15 have an impact on earnings on average. But there's another bit of information that I'll give you that also comes in the same article that we've talked about before. Nations where kids know more math is measured by these same kinds of math tests mm -hmm. grow faster, other things being equal. And it makes a huge difference. So what this is saying is that you learn something along the way and it multiplies and adds up to having a real impact on the economy. I, I, for me, it's the other things being equal part. I just, I, I struggle to believe that other things are being held equal. Now, it's true you, you do the best you can when you try to assess these. I mean, the crucial question would be when we observe that people with higher test scores do better in terms of lifetime earnings. I, I that they're decent. They're, they're not perfect. They're they're noisy predictors, but there's a strong average tendency. You know, the question is, what are they measuring? Are they measuring the value add or are they measuring the innate, innate ability or other factors that are correlated with income? 
Oh, I think they're measuring all of those things. Um, they're measuring innate abilities. Some people are smarter than others. They're going to achieve more. That's your sort of base model. Yeah. Some families are better at preparing their kids than others, and that adds into their achievement. What we found from all of this research is that teachers can also affect what kids know at any point in time. And in fact, going back to a, a remark that you made earlier, what we see is that the difference in teacher effectiveness is largest within any school as opposed to between schools. That's fascinating. So it's not that the suburban schools get all the good teachers and the city schools get all the poor teachers. It's that the variation within any school is much larger than the variation between schools. Now that's fascinating, and I, and I, and I agree. That, that, that's, it brings me up short. It, makes, it, it forces me to, re, to consider my argument, my skepticism. I, I, w- I was going to say on, on favor of your argument, certainly parents spend a lot, an immense amount of effort and, and ex- direct expenditure by choosing where they live to make sure their kids get into, quote, a good school. Now, of course, there can be many reasons for that, social and cultural and other reasons. But you're, what you're saying is that with it, that certain schools do better on average than other schools, but even within a school, uh, there's an immense amount of variation um, in, in performance as measured by these tests. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so it's not all the, the good kids who have teachers that look like they have high value-added the, all of these estimates are an attempt to take into account where the kids started at the beginning sure. of the year. So what's been the reaction of this um, finding? How have people reacted to your claim? Well, it's a, funny, claim. <laughs> it's a funny reaction. Um, part of the claim is that bad teachers are really hurting kids. And that has been picked up in some of the policy discussions, and in fact, the uh, people in the teachers' unions really dislike this argument that there are a small percentage of our teachers that are really doing harm to our kids, uh, because this gets to the heart of whether they protect all teachers through tenure or whether they move toward a better evaluation system. So I think the reaction has been largest there, There's another reaction that just perfectly puzzles me, and that is if you talk at all about differences in effectiveness of teachers, and in part this is a tribute to our good teachers. Absolutely. Sure. The $400,000 a year that's being created. um, There are some people who immediately say, you hate teachers, you're against teachers, Um, and that if you say that there's any difference among teachers, you're obviously anti-teacher. And that just completely puzzles me because this is a, an occupation where some people are better than others, just as economics is an occupation where some people are better than others and being a lawyer and so forth. Um, and we just have to recognize that. And since this has such a huge public policy part to it, of how we run our schools, I think we have to pay attention to that in the policy arena. Do you think it's uh, the way our current system works, and of course 
it's an emergent system. It's not designed by anyone, uh, any one person or any board or committee. The invisible hand. It is. It's an, <laughs> definitely an invisible hand system. In the current world, uh, we could debate whether high school teachers are paid a lot or little. It's a tricky thing. There's there's lots of non-monetary aspects of, of being a high school teacher. Um, summers off, often generous pensions. So, so looking just at salaries is often misleading. But one thing you can't argue about is that professors at, you know, at the university level make more than high school teachers. And there, there's many, many reasons for that. But I'd like you to just chat about whether, you know, think about for a second, is it, does that make sense? In other words, is it imaginable that that should be reversed if our either invisible hand wasn't being stopped by legal and governmental involvement at both college and the high school level? Because you could argue that the value added, that the demand, on just on the demand side, that the demand for great instruction in K through 12 should be much more important and much higher than it is for at the university level when we really are capable of teaching ourselves. The whole instruction aspect is very different. Similarly, you could, you could reverse it and say, you know, when you're nine years old, having a great teacher is not that important. It's somebody who you know, sets you on fire in a, in a phenomenal philosophy class that changes your life, it's hard to change that primitive brain of a nine-year-old, less, less developed brain. Well, that's, that's a really valuable and important question. Uh, and there's some debate in the education reform literature that goes along this line. One argument is that we try to use the political system to emulate what a market would look like right. in schools. And we try to set up things like accountability systems and so forth to provide the equivalent of how firms manage their business. There's another group of people that say this is just hopeless, that what we have to do is go to a private uh, voucher system or some sort of broadened choice system. Uh, I guess I come out somewhere in between in the sense that I don't think we're going to move to all voucher system in the near future, and that even if we opened up broader vouchers, 80% would still want to go to their existing public schools. And there are values in public schools. So I think that more choice is beneficial, and it puts a lot of pressure on the schools as you get some places where a quarter of the schools are charter schools that have a choice element to them and aren't unionized and so forth. Um, I think that's important, but I think at the same time, because there will be a heavy political element to all of this, you have to have good accountability systems that measure performance, that make that transparent, that try to build in rewards for better performance as opposed to poorer performance. So it's somewhere in between. Um, I think we can do a lot better with marginal changes in the current system, but politics are important. Uh, the the bigger politics of what goes on in the California legislature um, versus choice and so forth. Let's end with 
a discussion of what's going on right now uh, in in America at the fiscal level. We have a situation, and this will tie back in. It's not obvious at first, but it will tie back into what we're talking about. We have a situation right now where uh, many, many states have serious financial issues. They've overexpanded, can't meet their bills. They may end up being bailed out by the federal government. Some have been effectively bailed out by the federal government through the stimulus package, uh, which transferred a lot of money to states and, and defenders of the and local governments. The, the defenders of stimulus say, well, that kept a lot of teachers from being fired or laid off. Um, and my first thought, and of course that's a great way to market stimulus, they, they always talk about the teachers, firefighters, and police that weren't laid off because, boy, who wants to go to a school without teachers or walk the streets without police or live in a neighborhood where houses can burn down? And my first thought when I hear that is, well, surely there are a lot of people in the education system, state, a lot of state employees and in the education system who aren't teaching. So my first question is, what room might we have in these fiscal uh, dilemmas to reduce employment at the state level that wouldn't hurt the classroom. Uh, and secondly, in our conversations before we started this, we did this interview, you suggested this might present an opportunity in the classroom itself. So talk about those things. Well, the first response is that our reform, in quotes, policy of the last 30 or 40 years has been to try to put more teachers and administrators in schools per kid so that class sizes have gone down and administrators have gone up. If I looked over the last 20 years, there's been a 20% increase in the number of students in classroom. There's been a 34% increase in the number of teachers in schools. Meaning and, smaller class size. Right. And there's been a 41% increase in total staff. Now that includes both teachers and other people around the edge. The fact that that's grown more than the teachers have grown suggests that the non-teacher part of employment has grown faster than the teacher part. Absolutely. And both have grown faster than the number of students. Absolutely. That's exactly the case. Um, so we've been on this policy of just adding more and more people and people, and then at any point in time, if there's a fiscal crisis, the newspapers immediately say, how could we reduce our class sizes Increase. Would we re? Or, I mean, how would um, how could we increase our class sizes? Sorry, uh, does that mean that we actually have to go back to two thousand and seven levels? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of um, ludicrous at one level when you think about how much we've reduced class sizes and added administrators to schools over the last period. But at another level, this comes back to exactly what we we're talking about in terms of teacher effectiveness. All of the estimates we have that are consistent with the numbers I gave you and the variations in teacher quality suggest that we could very dramatically improve our student achievement if we could eliminate the worst teachers and that eliminate them and let class sizes be slightly larger. They don't have to be much larger. But if we could reduce the bottom 5 to 8 percent of our teachers, the international estimates suggest that we would 
jump from below the developed country average in terms of math and science to near the top. This has a huge impact. So in fact, the fiscal crisis could be a tremendous gain for our schools. Now what's against that, of course, is the fact that most schools are under contracts, or most districts are under contracts that call for LIFO policies, last in, first out, so that if you're going to reduce the number of teachers, you have to get rid of the youngest teachers, regardless of whether they're effective or ineffective. And regardless whether you have some dinosaurs who've been around for 30, 40 years who are atrocious, but they're protected. Precisely. So some of the debates around the country in different states, there are now eight or nine states, maybe more, that are revisiting their labor laws, particularly as applied to schools. Here, some states are trying to cut back on tenure to eliminate the LIFO policies, even if there's tenures around. In fact, there are even court orders in Los Angeles that said, there was a recent court order that said that for the group of very disadvantaged schools that were part of this lawsuit, the district could not lay off an undue number of teachers, which effectively meant that they couldn't just fire all the young teachers in these schools uh, and get away with it. Mm. So um, fiscal problems uh, have different uh, meanings. Um, the newspapers typically get them quite wrong because they concentrate on the fact that every spring a vast majority of the schools in the nation hand out pink slips. They hand out pink slips to teachers saying you might be laid off because they don't even know what their budget is going to be next year and the contract says that they have to give notice. So they hand out a lot of pink slips. Until this last year, virtually none of those pink slips have actually been executed. Teachers have stayed around and nobody has been replaced. This last or year and, and ne or laid off, um, this next year and maybe some last year, a few teachers have been laid off. And it makes a big difference who gets laid off. Yeah. My guest today has been Eric Hanischek. Rick, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's always good. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.